wonderful way of making people feel comfortable and welcome. I'm not saying that to have something nice to say. I mean that. And this is a good place. In case some of you didn't know this, this is a good place. Uh, if the Lord would have moved me to this area, I wouldn't even pray about coming here. I would assume it's the Lord's will. Amen. Anyway, open your Bible to Galatians chapter 5. Um, you know, we have something wonderful in Christ, and that's not my subject tonight, but um, the atheist, you know, they, they really chide us, they make fun of us, they think we're a bunch of simpletons and, and prisoners and so forth to our tenets of our religion and our faith and our God and, and so forth. And I said the other night, they think we're bound and they're free when in fact we're free and they're bound. But we have all this in heaven too. And, uh, you know, for the atheist, here's something he has to think about. If we're right, he's in trouble. If he's right, we haven't lost a thing. <laughs> you know, it's wonderful to be a Christian down here. It's the best way of living. It is the best way to live. If there were no heaven, it's still the best way to live. Amen. Anyway, Galatians chapter 5. I preached Sunday morning on re the reiteration of the gospel and Sunday night on the perversion of the gospel from Galatians chapter 1. And I preached Monday night on protecting the gospel and I preached Tuesday night on faith in the gospel. And, last, and Wednesday night I preached on liberty in the gospel. And uh, 30, correction, 28 years ago, I read the text I'm going to read tonight. And can you imagine that? 28 years ago, I preached in the pulpit of this church. Matter of fact, I preached in this pulpit over 30 years ago. And uh, I've enjoyed every time they've been here. But I preached on this, uh, this, from this text 28 years ago in this pulpit. But I'm going to, Lord helping, I'm going to preach on it again tonight because it fits right here. And besides that, you probably wouldn't remember what I preached anyway. Does anybody remember that I preached on this 28 years ago? Does anybody remember that here? Pardon? <laughs> you know, us, us preachers, we, we, you don't wear any scriptures out, folks. You don't wear sermons out. And uh, sometimes I preach, very seldom I preach the same sermon in the same church. But if I ever do, without doubt, some little old lady is going to say, you know, you preached that right here. <laughs> she, made it, she made a note on the margin of her Bible 30 years ago, you know. <laughs> Anyway, Galatians chapter 5, I'll begin reading in verse 16, read down through verse 24, and it reads as follows, then, then I, <clears throat> This I say, then walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so you cannot do the things that you would. But if you be led of the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, Idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. With that, I want us to bow our heads and earnestly ask the Lord to bless the message tonight and give us something from it. 
Father in heaven, I thank you for the good services we've enjoyed here this week and the splendid fellowship we've enjoyed with these dear people, the best people on earth, God's people. <clears throat> and the fact that we would have been blessed if we, if we only had good singing here this week. It, we would have been fed. We would have been nourished. We would have been challenged and, and, and so forth. But we're down now once again in this service to the most important part. We've already had a good time here tonight and could leave now and say we have, but we're down to the very important, the most important part. So I pray that you would touch me afresh tonight and help me declare the Word of God clearly, powerfully, and effectively. And in such a matter, once again, that the youngest person here could get something from it. And once again, help me love these people as I preach to them tonight, as if I myself were their pastor. I'll be grateful if you'll do that, and I will praise you for it now in advance. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. But we have an introduction. There are four things that need to be seen in Paul's ministry relative to his ministry in Galatia. First of all, we see his assignment in Galatia. And I've touched on that one time this week, but Paul was called by the Holy Spirit. The Bible says in Acts 13 and verse 2, As the minister to the Lord and faster, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me Barnabas and Saul, for the work round to I have called them. He was not only called by the Holy Spirit, he was commissioned by the church. Verse 3 of that chapter. The Bible said, When they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. And then in verse 4, Paul commenced his journey and directed by the Holy Spirit, of course, into Seleucia and Cyprus and Perga and eventually into a Roman province called Galatia. And he had a good ministry there. He won a lot of people to the Lord. He established churches there. The Bible talked about the churches of Galatia. Evidently, there's more than one church there. We see his assignment there. We also see his affection for the Galatians expressed here. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 3, the Bible said, Grace be to you in peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be to you. You know, that was a, an, an, expression, an expression of affection for Christians in those days. And it still should be. Grace and peace unto you. And uh, we, it wouldn't hurt a thing if we greeted each other that way now. Grace and peace be to you. Grace be unto you. You know, it means something. And it did then. And uh, having said that, you know, there is a special bond between you and the person that led you to Christ that does not exist between you and anyone else. Paul led these people to Christ. He's expressing his affection to them in chapter 1, verse 3. And there was that bond there. When I say that without a doubt, many of you right now are thinking about the person who was most instrumental in leading you to Christ. With some of you, it might have been your parents. With uh, quite a number of you, I'm sure it was your preacher, maybe a friend, maybe a Sunday school teacher. And so forth. I'm thinking about the man that was most instrumental in leading me to Christ. His name was Jay Moore. He was a pastor, and he also did a lot of evangelistic work. And down south in Alabama, where I live, in those days, it, the churches didn't have air conditioning, unless it was the first Baptist, first Baptist church uptown, you know, that type of thing. But out in the country, they didn't have air conditioning. And, uh, man, in the summertime, it would get hot in there. When Jay Moore finished preaching, there would not be one dry stitch on his body. Even his socks were full of water. And he preached the message, preached the gospel. I got saved that night. But anyway, we see, his, we see his assignment there. We see his affection for the Galatians expressed very clearly in chapter 1, verse 3. Notice also we see his address of the problems in Galatia. See, Judaizers, I've said this already, I guess, at least one time this week. The Judaizers had fought at Paul, and they had subverted his very impressionable young hearers, like new converts can be. You know, if you and somebody to Christ, you better watch after them real close, especially in our world today, because the devil has their name, amen. 
and uh, he has their name listed and he's going to pay them a visit. There are three things that are obvious, pretty much obvious about that. Notice his reference to this in chapter 1 in verse 6 and 7. I marvel that you're so soon removed from him which called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel which is not another but there be some that trouble you and uh, would pervert the gospel of Christ. My, what a mouthful that is. He made a reference to that there. He also expressed his righteous indignation about it in the next two verses. Galatians 1, 8 and 9. But though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that we have preached unto you, let me be accursed. Verse 9, as I said before, so I say that again. If any man preach any other gospel unto you than that you receive, let him be accursed. Paul was really terse about that. You see, he would have made a very good charismatic, I know that. If you think that was kind of terse, you'll read chapter 5, verse 12. I would they were even cut off, which troubled you. You know what the Bible said in Colossians 2, 8? Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. You know what? He didn't use that word beware very often. He always put it right in front of something that we really need to pay attention to. Beware lest any man spoil you. He's implying that Christians can be spoiled with false teaching. By the way, and many of them are. Uh, our world is full of people like, have you ever thought about this? The worst crime committed in anybody's town anywhere is heresy, false teaching. See, if you, it's worse than murder. It's worse than rape. It's worse than kidnapping. You know why? It is a crime of eternal significance. You teach someone a lie and they die and go to hell thinking they're going to heaven. Their case is not going to be reviewed and their sentence is not going to be revoked just because they were taught a lie. And it happens all the time. You know, you know what the devil used to send more people to hell than anything else? It's not atheism, folks. It is false religion, false teaching, false security. A lot of people are very, very religious. They've been religious all their life, never thought about ever being anything else. But they're wrong and they're not going to go to heaven because they've rejected, they've missed the main thing that gets you to heaven. And the devil makes sure that that happens. God hates heresy. The Bible said in Deuteronomy 13 and verse 5, And that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has spoken to turn you away from the Lord your God. That was God that said that, folks. God feels strongly against false teaching. By the way, so do I and so do you if you're a Bible student. If you don't, you should. And the Bible says in Jeremiah 5, 30 and 31, A wonderful and horrible thing is committed in the land. The prophets prophesy false to the priests, bury with their means. And my people love to have it so, and what will you do in the end thereof? Now, see, he wasn't saying wonderful good. He said it's something to be wondered at. A wonderful and horrible thing is committed in the land. And Jesus warned us specifically about that in Matthew 7, 15, when he said, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravening wolves. And I pointed out already this week that where that verse is positioned there, it's right after verse 13 and 14, Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Enter ye at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Uh, excuse me. Enter ye into the straight gate, or in the broad way, where there's many people, I get it wrong here, many people go in the broad way, few people go into the narrow way. And then in verse 15, beware of false prophets. It's all in the same context. And if I hadn't tried to quote him at the same time, I'd have probably got it right. But anyway, heresy is a crime of eternal significance. And uh, I, uh, listen folks, I hate heresy. I hate false teaching. And so does God. So I didn't think Christians were supposed to hate. You haven't read your Bible very much, have you? 
Uh, you start making a list. You start in front of your Bible reading all over through it. Start making a list of the things that God hates. You're going to find a pretty good list before you get finished. God hates some things. And by the way, if you're a healthy Christian, you do too. We are supposed to hate the things that God hates. Anyway, uh, there, was, uh, there were three isms there, and I'm going to enlarge on those a little bit more tonight. Uh, first of all, there was Galatianism. Galatianism is saved by grace, but kept by works. You know, works are not keeping you any more than they saved you. If works could keep you saved, works could have saved you. But works do not save us. The Bible declares in the clearest terminology possible in Ephesians 2, verses 89, For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, not of works, not of works, lest any man should boast. One thing that we're not going to have in heaven, folks, is somebody boasting about their, their, their works getting them in. It's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. We're saved by grace, but, and we're kept with the power of God. The Bible said in 1 Peter 1, 4 and 5, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that faith is not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. Kept. I like the sound of that, don't you? Jude verse 24, the Bible said, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. Notice there was uh, Galatianism there, and that was saved by grace, kept works. Notice there was another ism called legalism. Now legalism, by definition, theological definition is saved exclusively by, by works and the law making no claim whatsoever to the grace of God. That's what legalism is. Uh, if, listen, if I preach against sin, somebody's going to tell me I'm legalistic. It has nothing to do with preaching against sin. Legalism has to do with salvation. And uh, to illustrate that, let me illustrate that like this. Uh, if I were to say to you, if you smoke cigarettes, you're going to hell. That's legalism. If I were to say, now if you'll quit smoking cigarettes, then you can go to heaven. That's legalism. Now, you might be encouraged to know that Baptists don't believe cigarette smoking will send you to hell. As a matter of fact, if you're saved and you smoke enough of them, you get to heaven before the rest of us do. Amen. <laughs> Legalism, saved exclusively by the law keeping. The Bible says in Galatians 2.16, For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Philippians 3, 9, to be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. That's how we're going to get to heaven, folks. Not our righteousness, but the righteousness which is by the faith of Jesus Christ. Legalism. By the way, uh, I can say what I want to about cigarettes because my dad smoked until it killed him. He died when he was 75 years old. Otherwise, he would have lived several more years. The doctor told him, he said, if you don't quit smoking those cigarettes, they're going to kill you. And he didn't, and they did. And a lot of other people do the same thing. Lots of people do the same thing. Uh, Peter warned us about this, this business, and I can spend some more time on that. I don't need to do that. But uh, by the way, did you know that four of the leading causes of death in America are self-inflicted? Lung cancer. Heart disease, cirrhosis of the liver, AIDS. Now, not in every case. I'm not saying everybody has that, has done something wrong. I'm saying the majority of the people that die of AIDS, the majority of the people that die of lung cancer and cirrhosis of the liver, the majority of them, has brought, they have brought it on themselves by their lifestyle. And it's the truth, folks. It is the truth. You know, it is something that Americans 
They want to live like they want to live. They want to eat what they want to eat. And when they get old enough and they don't have any money left, they want the government to take care of them. Somebody say amen to that. That's, that wasn't in my sermon. I don't know how it got in there. But notice there was another ism. Uh, not only Galatianism and legalism. Uh, by the way, the Bible, said, the Bible says your body is important to God. Did you know that? The Bible said in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. So preachers, it's nobody's business. It's how I, what I eat and how I take care of it. Yes, it is. It's God's business if you're born again. You belong to him. Did you know that? How about 1 Corinthians 6.19? What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and ye are not your own, for you bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. Man, if that's not clear enough, I don't know where we could find something that would convince you. But notice something else. There was antinomianism. Antinomianism was saved by grace, kept by the power of God, sins under, under the blood of Christ, past, present, and future. By the way, all that's correct. But because of that, we have no moral responsibility. That's what the, the antinomians said. They said, well, our sins are on the blood of Christ, past, present, and future. We're saved by the grace of God. We're justified in His sight. And so we can live any way we want to because our sins are on the blood of Christ, past, present, and future. Now, that's, not, that's only partially true. Uh, it is true that our sins are on the blood of Christ, past, present, and future. And it is, it is true that when God looks at you, He sees you as clean as Jesus Christ because He sees you through the prism of the blood of His only begotten Son as being just as clean as Jesus. And folks, that's enough to humble anybody. I'm humbled by that. But it doesn't mean we conduct ourselves that way. We're just before God sees us like that, and I'm glad he does. The Bible said in Galatians 5, 13, For brethren, you've been called unto liberty, only use not liberty as an occasion to the flesh. And Peter warned us about it in 1 Peter 2, 16, when he said this, As free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God, Titus 3, this is a faithful saying, and the Bible said, And these things I will that thou firm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works, for these things are good and profitable unto men. What's he saying? He's saying, Say people are supposed to live a Christ-honoring life, a clean, righteous life, because it profits the people around you. I like what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Anyway, um, so, well, you know, you Baptist, you Baptist, if I believe what you believe, I've heard people say this, I'd get saved and do anything I want to do. And I said, what have you been wanting to do? And they said, well, nothing really. I mean, <laughs> I just can't believe this once saved always stuff. That's because they've not read the Bible much. Yeah. So when I, by the way, if you don't believe, if you're born again and uh, you think that you can live like you want to, I recommend you go ahead and try it for a little while. Because you're aching for breaking, rocking, for a knocking and cruising, for a bruising. <laughs> the God we serve will pay you a visit. He is your father. He will pay you a visit. Amen. <laughs> Anyway, we see his assignment in Galatia. We see his affection for the Galatians. We see his address of the problems in Galatia. And notice we see his advice to the Galatians had to do with the flesh. The three things we must never forget when it comes to the flesh. 
and I'm, I'm preaching tonight on the Christian in the flesh. The greatest liability you have in your Christian life, folks, is the flesh. It's your flesh. Uh, let me put it like this. If the devil dropped dead tonight, tomorrow you'd still have a battle with your flesh. The devil gets blamed for a lot of this stuff probably didn't have anything to do with. <laughs> and if, listen, if Satan gets you and ruins your testimony, he's going to get you through your flesh. So we're saved, but our flesh is not regenerated. Right. I preached it already this week, one time or another, one way or another. But our flesh is just as rotten and prone to sin as it was before we got saved. So when do you know what Paul had to say to the Galatians about the flesh? And I'm going to center my thoughts around five things. Now, you, you wouldn't want me to tell you that I have five points, so I'm not going to tell you that. Uh, I have several points tonight. If you're making notes, write this one down. There is the conflict of the flesh. The Bible tells, by the way, the two things you can never forget about that. One is we, listen, we have two natures. According to the scripture, Romans 7, 21, I find in a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. You know what Paul is saying? He's saying there's an inner man and there's an outer man. If you're born again, there's an inner man and an outer man. And... Uh, that inner man, that inward man, is Christ in you. Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. You know what the Bible said in 1 John 3, 9, whosoever is born of God does not commit sin. You know what the Bible says that? Because that inner man is Christ in you, and he's not the sinner. He's the one that says, don't do it. Don't do that. Don't do it. Don't do it. And if you go ahead and do it, he's the one that goes to bed with you at night and says, you shouldn't have done it. You shouldn't have done it. You shouldn't have done it. You can snigger if you'd like to, because all of it, but all of us know. <laughs> we know about this. <laughs> anyway, uh, the Bible tells us that when, before we got saved, we were at the mercy of the world, the flesh, and the devil. After we're saved, we can walk in the spirit of the flesh, but we're not at the mercy of the world and the flesh and the devil anymore. There's a new man on the inside, Amen. But listen, I said this. We have two natures about us. I need to say this. Those two natures are in conflict. Uh, the word conflict means to come into collision with a battle or a prolonged struggle. When I got saved March the 12th of 1958, my inner man had a collision with my outer man, and it's been a battle ever since then. It's going to be that way the rest of the way. You're not ever going to get spiritually strong enough and, uh, and tall enough spiritually that you're not going to have that struggle because you have the flesh to deal with. You're not, you're not going to get there. The Bible says in Galatians 5, 16, this I say, then walk in the Spirit. And, and, uh, and, 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 and he's telling us in those two verses there that there's a real conflict. Contrary. Conflict. They, the same, they, they mean the same thing, basically. These two natures are in conflict and Paul really emphasized that so that we would understand that. And Paul said this is a law. It's going to be that way always. A permanent invariable rule. <laughs> Here's how Paul put it in Romans 7, 18. For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present, but how to perform that which is good I find not. And you know what else he went on to say? He went on to say, if I do that which I would not... It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Uh, as a Christian, when you, when you do things you ought not to do, 
You're doing that through the weakness of your flesh. That inner man is not the one responsible for that. He's the one that talk you out of if you'd let him do it. Amen. This I say, then walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Flesh for the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary, the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. Listen, in the flesh, the things that you would do. But you don't have to do them if you turn it over to God. Put it in the Lord's hands. <laughs> Paul said, it's a law. In Romans 7, 20, when I find in a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. In Romans 8, 7, he said this, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. The word enmity means hostility. It means strong opposition to. It means enemy of. Uh, there is a battle going on with you if you're born again between the inner man and the outer man. It's going to be that way all day tomorrow and the next day and all the days ahead of you until you meet the Lord and get a new body. See, the flesh, to be more specific, the flesh always desires to be in the wrong place with the wrong people, the wrong practice, even the wrong food. I, I believe this. If you just ate what you like to eat and you had no regard whatsoever to health or anything else, you just ate whatever you wanted to eat, you would shorten your life. Uh, you swear, preacher, the flesh has nothing to do with our food. If you don't believe the flesh has something to do with food, you let your kids buy the groceries next week. You'll be lucky if you have potato chips for breakfast. My wife loves chocolate. She heard somewhere a while back that chocolate is good for you. And she eats chocolate every day with rare exceptions. She said a balanced diet is chocolate in both hands. <laughs> she has a plaque in the kitchen that says, hand over the chocolate and nobody gets hurt. <laughs> and by the way, she has me eating dark chocolate. I'm talking about not, not the sweet stuff, but the real dark chocolate. You know, 70, 80% stuff, you know. And, uh, and it doesn't taste as sweet as the other does, but you'll get used to it. And you know what? It brought her cholesterol down to normal. The doctor told it wouldn't, and it did. She said, I'm a woman of many moods, and chocolate is the solution to all of them. <laughs> Friend of mine, the doctor put him on a diet. He said, the diet is real simple. If it tastes good, spit it out. You know, that's pretty near right. Did you know that? <laughs> oh, my... Uh, you know, if you, um, if you, you can experiment with this if you want to. If you think you have hypertension, you know, high blood pressure, you write down a list of food, let's say a dozen foods that you can't do without. Fold it up, put it in your pocket. You write down another list on another list, a dozen foods you can't stand. Fold it up, put it in your pocket. You go to the doctor and he's going to check you out and he's going to say, all right, now listen, listen, you, come up and sit down easy because you're walking time bomb. Sit down easy. Your blood pressure's out of sight. Now, I'm going to put you on a diet. Now, I'm going to give you a list of food that you need to eat. He'll give you that list of food that you can't stand without even looking at it. And then he'll say, now, furthermore, if you want to keep living, here's some stuff you have to leave off, and he'll read that other list without reading it. Well, there's something crooked going on here. <laughs> You know, they say brain cells die, they never reproduce. But I'm going to tell you, those fat cells don't die. 
You go to die if they just kind of hunker down. You eat a Big Mac. Here they all come running back. <laughs> you know, the restaurants are not innocent in this. They manipulate us. Say you're driving down the interstate, it's about noon, and here's a billboard out here with a hamburger that's 14 feet high. And uh, the flesh says, uh, man, I could use a couple of them. <laughs> you said, well, I'm going to eat from the roast vegetable bar today. I'm going to take better care of the temple. And you don't hear it, but the flesh goes. <laughs> you get in the restaurant, everything changes. You see those pictures of those steaks, pork chops, and all that kind of stuff. By the time it's time for you to place your order, everything has changed. They manipulate us. And we're manipulatable. Amen. <laughs> oh my, there's the conflict of the flesh. And then there's the character of the flesh. It is declared in Romans chapter 7. By the way, to put it simply, it's declared in Romans. It is described in Galatians. It's demonstrated in Corinthians. If you want to build a sermon out of that. Romans 7, 18, For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing, for the will is present. How to perform that which is good I find not. Romans 7, 21, I find that in the law that when I would do good, evil is present with me, for I delight in the law of God after the inward men. But I sin of the law of my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Christ Jesus, so then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Couldn't be said any better. Nobody can improve on that. You know what the Bible said in Philippians 3, 21? Who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. He calls our body our vile body. And it is. As far as God's concerned. I, I gave you this verse I think last night, 1 Corinthians 9, 27. But I keep unto my body and bring it into subjection lest by any means when I preach to others I myself shall be a castaway. Paul is saying to us indirectly, my body is corrupt. It's unregenerated. I have to keep it under control. I bring it in subjection. You have to do that, folks. If you don't, you'll end up being led into sin and a lot of heartache. And a lot of people get to do that. Pastors know about that and talking to members and counseling with members. But see, it's declared in Romans. It is described in Galatians, verses 19 and 20. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, with the, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envies, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of which I tell you before, as I've also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. <laughs> Adultery. Fornication, uncleanness, lascivious. By the way, that's all uh, flesh stuff. It's all flesh. How about idolatry? Oh, preacher, uh, is there anything wrong with idolatry? Colossians 3 5 says there is. Idolatry, Bible says covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness. You see, you can, you can have an idol in your life and not even possess it. If you're so obsessed with having something that you don't have, it becomes an idol in your life. According to God. And he's, listen, I said it the other night. He's been right out of a time so far. Then there's witchcraft. Then there's hatred. You know, some people are so spiritual, they wouldn't say, I hate old so-and-so, but they say, I, I intensely dislike them. But that's the definition for it. Hatred, intense dislike. <laughs> How about variance? You know what the definition is? Consistently in disagreement for the purpose of being disagreeable. 
I pastored a church 19 years. I ran into some variants. <clears throat> I'm going to tell you something, folks. Your pastor can't please everybody. And listen, I have another verse with that. Neither can God. Why would you expect your pastor to please everybody if God can't? Amen? Sometimes I say something like that. It takes a long time to go to the back and come back, you know. You know, get back to me. But it's the truth. People expect, somebody comes to the pastor and says, you know, some of us really don't like. Come to find out it was just them. Just the people would lie. Are you kidding? <laughs> Variants. You've heard the donkey story, haven't you? Or haven't you? If you haven't, I'll tell it to you. This old gentleman and his grandson were riding through a part of the country, an arid part of the country, supposedly. And they had one donkey, and it was really hot that day. And so they said, uh, let's ride the donkey. It's so hot. They get on, came down the first village. People there said, look at that old man and that little boy both riding that poor old donkey on a hot day like this. The old man said, son, I'll tell you what, I'll get off and you ride. Get in the next village. Look at that young man riding that donkey and that poor old man having to walk. Get in the next. He said, well, let's change. I'll ride. You walk. Get in the next village. Look at that old man riding that donkey and that poor little boy having to walk. Son, I tell you what, let's both walk. Get in the next village. You guys are crazy. I'd be riding that donkey today if I were you. You can't please everybody. I like what one pastor put on his door. On, on the outside of the door it said, I can please only one person per day, and today is not your day. And tomorrow doesn't look good either. <laughs> Oh, my. Hey, by the way, have you heard the chandelier story? I would tell you that one. Preacher's having a business meeting. Look at me. Look at me, folks. I hate business meetings. No apologies. More churches get split up and torn up trying to have a business meeting than any other cause. <laughs> anyway. They were trying to have a business meeting. One of the men stood up kind of timidly. He said, Pastor, I'd like to make a move that we take the money in the church and buy a chandelier for our church house. He sits down. Another guy who was afflicted with variance is on the floor. And as nice as he could, he said, I'm a kinnit. <laughs> Pastor said, well, sir, would you please state your... I'm a kinnit on three counts. Number one, we don't have no money to buy one. Number two, we don't have anybody to play it if we got it. And number three, we need some lights in the church house. Somebody said it's a lot better to let people think you're a fool than if you'd open your mouth and confirm it all together. <laughs> By the way, you have a good pastor here. Uh, you know, carnal people will call a good pastor a dictator. Carnal Christians. Not godly Christians. Carnal Christians do that. Now, I'm going to tell you something about your pastor. He's not up here to be a dictator. He's up here to be sure you're not. Amen. I pastored long enough, 19 years, to learn that a lot of people want to dictate from the pew. And it never did work with Brother Fielder. <laughs> we had discussions over that. But anyway, there's the matter of variance. Then there's the matter of emulations. That's efforts to equal or excel others. Then there's the matter of wrath. That's stern, strong, a fierce anger. Then there's strife. That's conflict and discord. We're talking about the flesh, folks. What about sedition? That's incitement of discontent or rebellion. I gave you this verse the other night. I don't want you to forget it. Proverbs 13, 10. Only by pride cometh contention. He didn't say most of the time. He said every time. 100 times out of 100. 
Proverbs 28, 25 said, He that is of a proud heart stirreth up strife. You know what the Bible said? God's opinion on that is. It's Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 16 and following. Are these six things that the Lord hate, yea, seven, an abomination unto him, a proud look. The number one item was pride. God hates pride, folks. And I'll tell you something. We don't have anything to be prideful about. We need to be humble. There's sedition. That's incitement of discontent or rebellion. Then there's heresies. That's false doctrines. Then there's envyings. That's discontent at another's success. You know, when I pastored years ago, been an evangelist in 39 years, going on 40 now. When I pastored, I, that's what I did. I didn't go anywhere. If, we ever went, if I ever took my family and went out of town, we'd leave Sunday afternoon or Sunday night after church, get back by Friday. Our people leave Friday, this one weekend, but stay gone the whole week and then this another weekend. They never did catch on to that, you know, like I did. I wanted them to do it like I did, but they never caught on to that. Anyway, I remember those days. And uh, I never went to preacher's fellowship meetings, very seldom. I mean, I mean, it was an unusual matter for me to go to a preacher's fellowship meeting. But if I ever did, invariably, something like this is going to happen. Some big old broad-shouldered preacher is going to slap you on the back and say, Brother, how things going down at your place these days? I tell you, God's poured over. God's turned a bucket of honey up at our place. I'm going to tell you, our attention has been rising every week so far. Our, our offerings are out of sight. We've been baptizing people every Sunday. And did you see that little car they just bought me for my recent anniversary? And by that time, you're saying, yeah, I saw it. <laughs> and then he says, about how many are you running these days? And I say, we're running between nine and ten hundred. We could have been running fifteen, you see. Nine and ten. He says, oh, it goes to bother somebody else. <laughs> oh, my, that's what you folks do. You're running between nine and ten hundred here. <laughs> In case you didn't get that. Then he mentions something else. So murders. So preacher, thank the Lord you, got me, you came to something I'm not guilty of. There are wives here that thought about killing your husbands. You know what the Bible said? It's just as wrong to think it is to do it. But it isn't. You may have thought about killing that husband of yours, but it's a good thing you didn't. It's better you didn't, amen. <laughs> Murders, drunkenness, revelings. There's the character of the flesh, Romans 7. There's the character of the flesh described in Galatians 5. Listen, it's demonstrated in Corinth. You know what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are you able. For where is this among you, envying and strife and divisions? Are you not carnal and walk as men? Well, he had their number, didn't he? But notice there's a conflict of the flesh. There's the character of it. There's also the contrast of the flesh and the spirit. Uh, look at verse 19 and 20 again. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, ungodly. And it goes on to name those 17 things that are mentioned in the context there. But goes right into verse 22. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no. Have you noticed the contrast there? Have you noticed that love is not in the verse 19 and 20 list? And hatred is not in the verse 22 and 3 list. You know why? They're on opposite ends of the spectrum. 
Matthew 26, 41 said the flesh is weak. John 6, 63, the flesh profiteth nothing. So we see the conflict of the flesh. We see the character of it. We see the contrast of the flesh and the spirit. What about the conquering of the flesh? Verse 24, they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lust. Two things involved in conquering the flesh. Number one, acknowledging, listen, acknowledging that the flesh has been conquered. Has been. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In Galatians 6.14, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. In Romans 6.2, God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Now Romans 6.6, knowing this, listen, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed. Henceforth, we should not serve sin, that henceforth we should not serve sin. You know what he's saying? He's saying we need to acknowledge this, that the flesh has been conquered, and it has. And I'll say more about that. But Romans 6, 12, he said, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should open the lust thereof. Neither yield ye members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Note verse 16, know you not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. You know what he's saying? You're in charge. That's why I, that's why I quote Colossians 3 to so often, set your affections because you're in charge of them. You're in charge of your affections. <laughs> Paul had a lot to say about the flesh and I've just given you a little bit of it. But notice, not only should we acknowledge the flesh has been conquered, we are to apply that truth in our life by faith, the only way you can do anything that pleases God. Hebrews eleven six. but without faith it is impossible to please Him. He that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that is a reward of them that diligently seek him. It's impossible. Verse 24 said, They that are Christ have crucified the flesh. Notice, it seems that the action here is by they. They that are Christ have crucified the flesh. See, having victory over the flesh is not a permanent thing. You have to get it this morning, and then you probably have to get it before the day's over again. It's kind of like shaving, you know. You shave in the morning. If you're a real man, you shave again in the late afternoon. Amen. <laughs> Have you ever wondered why little old boys want to start shaving early? I don't know why they want to start shaving before they have anything to shave. One of the boys talking to his buddy. His buddy said, said hey, have you started shaving yet? He said, oh, shucks, I've been shaving two years. You have? Do you ever cut yourself both times? See, victory over the flesh is something you do. You never go, listen, you're never going to get permanent victory over the flesh. You're not going to get permanent victory. You're going to have to keep getting it and keep getting it and keep getting it. Amen. Verse 11 said, Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. You know, what you know what he said in verse 11, reckon ye? Because in verse 6 he said, Knowing this, that old man's crucified. If the Bible said in verse 6, we know it, then in verse 11, we ought to consider it true. Amen? It doesn't mean you can't sin. By the way, having victory over the flesh 
does not mean you can't sin or won't sin. It means you don't have to. You could not name one sin that you're at the mercy of as a born-again child of God. We do sin, but we don't have to. Of course, God knows that too. The flesh can be conquered. Did you know that? The Bible said in Romans 12, When I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your unreasonable service. Is that the way that goes? Did, did you pick up on that? Did I get that right? That's how the reversed vision. <laughs> Not the reversed vision. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, that you present your body as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reason, reasonable service. God's not asking anything out of us unreasonable. Amen. I quoted 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 a while ago about the body. Your body belongs to God, and it does. Uh, somebody asked an Indian chief once, and you know those Indian chiefs, they had... They, uh, they were reputed to be very wise men. They didn't say much, but when they said something, it was profound. And somebody asked this Indian chief once. He'd been born again. He was having some struggles in this area. And somebody said, well, chief, tell us about the struggles you're having. He said, it's like there's a battle. He said, it's like there are two dogs inside me, and, and they fight all the time. Fellow said, well, so which one wins? He said, the one I feed the most. Amen? See, if you feed the outer man, the inner man suffers. However, if you feed the inner man on the things of God, the outer man must submit. <laughs> there's the conflict of the flesh. There's the character of the flesh. There's the contrast of the flesh to the spirit. There's the conquering of the flesh. There's not on that. There is the control of conquered flesh. Verse 25, if we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. Now, there are three questions here. One is this. Are we at the mercy of the flesh? No. Here's another one. Is it a losing battle? No. Can the flesh be controlled? Yes. And God expects us to. Three things related to that. One is submission. See, in this war with the flesh, you win by submitting, not to the flesh, but by submitting your flesh to God. I quoted 1 Corinthians 9, 27 while ago, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest by any means when I preach to others, I myself should be a castaway. Uh, you know, that is synonymous with uh, verses like um, Galatians 5, 16, walking in the Spirit. It is synonymous with obedience to Christ. John 15, verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my life. It's synonymous with presenting your body, Romans 12, 1 and 2. It is synonymous with yielding your members, Romans 6, 12 through 14, that I quoted earlier. Now, how many of you grew up on a farm? Would you raise your hand? Hold them up so that I can see them. You're very you're fortunate people. You, the ones of you didn't raise your hand, you're very unfortunate. Growing up on a farm was a wonderful place to grow up. I mean, you see how good I turned out. <laughs> I remember um, back early on, I'm talking about years ago. See, I'm, I'm 80. I told some of you that already. But I remember when we only had mules to plow with. We didn't have a tractor. Oh, correction, we had stinking mules. <laughs> My dad could never get two good mules at one time. We always had one that was good, worth its money, had one that wasn't worth making soap out of. But anyway, one day my dad came home with a yellow and green putt, putt, putt John Deere tractor. And boy, I'm gonna tell you, me and my brother, 
We were excited because he's going to get rid of those stinking mules. So what happened was my dad would plow the tractor and my mother, who was a very ingenious and a real pusher, she's in charge of the work crew. And the work crew consisted of four boys and each one had two sisters. Some of you had trouble with that. I said that in a church up in Indiana one time and this older couple sat right in front of my wife and he's doing this. And his wife leaned over and said, 12! <laughs> they didn't realize they were, we had the same sisters. That helps some of you. I suppose they. Anyway, my mother's in charge of the work crew and she's a pusher. My mother learned to play the piano when she was 70-something years old. And she, she would apply herself. Anyway, I, I remember and, uh, and we're out in the field and, and I'm standing there and my mother says, Joe! I said, I ain't doing nothing. I know you're not doing nothing. Boy, you get to work. That's where she was. Because I saw every, I saw every bird that went over and every plane. You have to be looking up to see the birds. They don't have motors. You know what I would see? I would see a hawk and the crows tormenting the hawk. Have you ever seen that? And those little hawks, they have those wings spread out there on the, on the currents, air currents, and they get higher and higher. And they finally get so high the crows can't reach their elevation. And the, they peel off and head to the treetops down below. But you know, what I'm illustrating is when you walk in the Spirit, you rise higher than the flesh. Walk in the Spirit, you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's what verse 17 said. Verse 16 and 17. You know, most of us, it's, it's a miracle we survived growing up. Uh, my mother, I said she was in charge of the work crew. We'd get out near the end of the row. We're chopping cotton or, or hoeing cotton or whatever. And it's getting late in the afternoon. We're begging my mother. We're so tired. Can we quit and go to the house now? <laughs> Finally, we get to the end of the row. She said, all right, we'll go to the house. We'd run all the way to the house. Bunch of lying kids. <laughs> it's, a wonder, it's a wonder she let us grow up at all. But here's what I'm saying. There's submission. You win by submitting to Christ. Submitting to the Spirit of God. Not only is there submission, there's caution. The Bible said in Romans 13, 14, Put you on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. So what does that mean? Well, if you got saved out of a, a liquor life, a life of liquor, you better get all the liquor out of your house because it's a provision for your flesh. If you got saved out of a life of pornography, you better be sure there's none left in your house because your flesh. <laughs> I, thought about, I heard about this little boy that um, went down a certain trail to a park to play by himself. And one day he discovered the neighbor had a lake or pond off the side of the trail and uh, so he started taking his bathing suit and going swimming by himself. His mother heard about it and it almost scared her to death. And she got a hold of him and almost scared him to death. She said, don't you ever go back in that lake again. He said, I promise I won't if you let me go back to the park. She finally agreed that he could go back. So he gets ready. He has his lunch packed. He's all dressed. He looks over there. There's his bathing suit. And he said to himself, I have no plans to go in the pond swimming again, but I'm going to take that bathing suit along in case I get tempted. You know what that is? That's a provision for the flesh. You're going to get tempted. <laughs> oh, down south, 
Listen, down there, everybody had a watermelon row in their field. One fellow had a, they usually planted right on top of a terrace row. One goes from one end of the field to the other. And this guy knew those boys around there were going to steal his watermelons. So now here at the end of the row, he put up a sign that said, one of these watermelons is poisoned. He went back the next day and said, now, now two of them are. <laughs> you might as well give those boys a watermelon, amen. <laughs> One fellow said, I, he said, I walked by my neighbor's watermelon patch. He said, I can't keep my mouth from watering, but I can run. <laughs> you know what he's saying? I don't want that provision for the flesh. I heard about a little boy that got caught stealing watermelons. It wasn't me. Honestly, I have never been caught stealing watermelons. <laughs> now, you're making the wrong thing out of that. <laughs> He's up before the judge. The judge looked over the bench and said, Young man, do you have anything to say before I pass sentence on you for stealing watermelons? The little boy is scared stiff. He looked up and he said, Chotra. <laughs> Judge, 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 have you ever stole a watermelon? The judge said, case dismissed. <laughs> oh, my. Listen, while we're laughing, let me tell you this. Ladies, the way you dress can be a provision for the flesh for somebody. I preached about David some this week, and uh, Bathsheba was complicit in the sin that took place back there. She had no business bathing in a place where anyone could see her. Now, I don't know what the situation was there, but that's what it was. So her clothes don't matter. God doesn't know that. Amen? Isn't it amazing? Some things he just know, doesn't know yet. How about Proverbs 7.10? There met him a woman with the attire of an harlot and subtle of heart. She's loud and stubborn. Her feet abide not in her house. She's a rebel. First Timothy 2, 9, and like men also the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shame faces and sobriety, not with broad hair, gold, or pearls, or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness. Christian, listen, men and women should dress in such a way that everybody that sees you will have no reason to believe you're not a Christian. My wife and I have been off in a distant mall. Listen, I really believe my wife's been in more malls than probably all these people put together here. She's been in malls all over the United States and Canada. But we were in one way out west somewhere, and somebody came up to her said, you must be a Christian. We didn't know who they were, and they didn't know who we were. You know why? She looked like a Christian. And I know you wish you hadn't brought this up. Let me tell you something else since I'm here, and I'm almost finished. Um, in Genesis chapter 3, the woman saw that the tree was good for food and pleasant to the eyes and the tree to be desired to make one wise and she took the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also to her husband with her and he did eat. Verse 7, and the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Now looking at that situation and knowing as much as I know about women, I bet there wasn't a good fig leaf left in the garden. You know how women are, they try them all on, you know. But here's what I want to point out about that. Here's a man and his wife. They're the only people in the world. And God is essentially saying, I still want you to wear clothes. I want you to wear clothes. 
As a matter of fact, he clothed him in verse 21 of that chapter. At least they knew they were naked. We don't, listen, there's a bunch of people out here today in these days that don't know they're naked, but they are. Don't you dare take your family to the beach somewhere, folks. So you're ruining a good sermon, fellow. <laughs> anyway, there's a matter of suspicion. You never trust the flesh. Let me give you a verse. Philippians 3, 3. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus. And here's what he said. And have no confidence in the flesh. Maybe that's why the Bible said in 1st, 2nd Timothy 2.22, flee youthful lusts. Didn't say stick around and show better how strong you are. said flee. In 1st Corinthians 6.18, flee fornication. 1st Corinthians 10.14, flee idolatry. You know why? Flesh. Your greatest liability is your flesh. If the devil ever gets you, it will get you to your flesh. There have been pastors, evangelists, missionaries, deacons, Sunday school teachers. There have been all kinds of Christians that their flesh ruined their testimony. They let their flesh ruin their testimony, I should say. I like what Martin Luther said about this. I don't agree with everything he said, but I do agree with this. In this context, he said, when Satan knocks at my door, I dare not go to the door. I send Jesus to the door. And when the devil sees the nail scarred hands of Jesus, he always flees. Listen, when the devil knocks at your door, flesh-wise, you better send Jesus to the door. Amen. I want you to stand. Let me ask you, are you walking in the spirit of the flesh tonight? Has the flesh gotten control of your life tonight? Do you need to use the altar and say, God, I want to give it back to you. I want you to have control of my life tonight. What would you do tonight if you did right now exactly what God wants you to do? What would you do? Father in heaven, I thank you for the word of God and trust the Holy Spirit used it tonight to help us. Challenge us, reprove us, rebuke us, whatever was necessary. I trust the Holy Spirit has used the word of God to do that and accomplish that. And because of that, we'll leave here a better Christian than we were when we arrived. And Lord, help us take these things seriously because many people didn't. And their life, they've lost their testimony can't witness. They can't win anybody to Christ because they've lost their testimony in Christ. I pray in Jesus' name while the music begins and continues, if God's spoken to your heart.